At Lexia, we know literacy changes lives. As the gateway to the future for every student, literacy can boost their confidence and help them realize their full potential. Based on the science of reading, our literacy programs, along with all of those dedicated educators, can change the path of students' lives forever. We believe literacy can and should be for all. That's why at Lexia, we're all for literacy. Well, one of the things I noticed and I, I've, with myself is that it, almost every client I have will come to me at some point, will go through, the ones who are in service businesses will start going through their client list, and they would always go, well, you, you know, you don't understand. In my industry, whatever that industry is, you just have to put up with people, or sometimes people don't pay, or sometimes this, and there was just, and it was one of those things, the first time, it's kind of like, well, I'm like, well, I've, I've, I was in the investment business, I worked in business, I've probably met with a thousand companies in my career, I'm like, um, I'm, this is not true across all industries, right, but I was like, maybe not, and as I started to build out, I started to realize this real pattern, the people were putting up with a lot of bad behavior from their clients, and they had bought into the idea that, you just have to roll with it. You just have to take certain amount of crap from your clients. And I'm really big on how do you manage your energy? Because it's like, the, I think that's the primary commodity. And I started to look at it. I was like, well, what, how do you feel after you get off the phone with a bad client? Do you want to pick up the phone and make three more calls? Do you want to like go in if you have employees? Do you want to go be positive and support them? No, it's like you want to complain to somebody. You want to go get a coffee. And it just starts to suck the energy out of your day. And I really started to understand how, how bad one bad client, even a couple just mediocre clients, like that they were just going to drain the life out of you. And that was really the difference. Because if you shed them, every time somebody, my clients, they'd cut this those bad clients, they would have so much relief. No matter how much, I mean, 30% of revenue might have gone away and they would be feeling better. And then within a very short period of time, they start to attract great clients and they're making more money and they have more energy. G'day everyone, Lauren Cress, the business scientist here. So I just recorded an introduction to this show and then realized that my microphone for some reason wasn't working again. And I now I have it working. I wanted to get a nice crisp introduction sound for you. So I'm re-recording it. You were just listening to part of my interview with Kezia Robinson, who is my guest for today. Kezia is a business strategist and coach, and she heads up Cassia Partners. And we did this interview not too long ago on LinkedIn Live, um, and it was great. It was so cool because now I'm doing most of my interviews on LinkedIn Live, actually. I pretty much want to only exclusively record them on LinkedIn live because what happens when I do it live is that people sort of join in the conversation, especially if I get the timing right. So this one was really great. Uh, I was at the right time. People were like jumping on and asking questions. And to me, that just makes the conversation so much more interesting. Uh, There's other perspectives thrown in. There's other questions thrown in, which I love. So this interview is one of my favorites in terms of that, just how it came out with people kind of throwing us questions. I'm doing another series of LinkedIn lives uh, coming up. So at the moment, how I'm kind of working is I do a bunch of uh, interviews, then I sort of start producing them, chopping them up. It's quite a lot of work to turn it into a podcast. So the podcast is always a little bit behind uh, what's happening live. So if you want to stay up to date with like the latest content as it's happening and join in the conversation, 
come join my network on LinkedIn Live. Come be part of the conversation. Most of the next series of interviews I'll be doing uh, 10, 11 a.m. in the morning around that time uh, on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. Sometimes I'll have people booked in for all three days. Sometimes I won't. Uh, and you can come and ask questions. So 10 or 11 AEST, uh, I'll be putting up posts so you know what's happening, when it's happening. Just come and follow me there. And then the other thing I'm doing that I just wanted to quickly mention is because I'm really getting into this live stream stuff, is I'm also doing a new series, which I'm not sure if I'll put it into this podcast or another one. I, m- I might I might do. Kind of kind of got to think about it because it'll be a bit of work. <laughs> but I'm doing these live uh, LinkedIn videos and YouTube videos that are all about how to sort of take off your invisibility cloak, how to be seen and heard online. So it's called Seen and Heard. And the first one I did was on the Wednesday just passed and I talked about how I got my first thousand subscribers on YouTube and also what I wish I knew about YouTube and getting subscribers uh, because it took me like a long time to get there. So I kind of figured, well, I'll I'll share with you everything I've learned um, and what would work a lot better (laughs) if I knew this when I started my YouTube channel. So I am constantly experimenting with content and trying to figure out what's working best. And I, as a result, I often am learning a lot of stuff that other people can just like take and run with and it will save them a bunch of time. So if that's something that you're interested in and you want to really get your name out there, uh, come and tune into these episodes. I'll probably be doing them every one to two weeks and they're available on YouTube as well. So if you prefer to watch videos on YouTube, you can come and subscribe to my channel. Just look up Lauren Cress. I'll put the links in the show notes as well, but Lauren Cress on YouTube, you'll find me and uh, there's lots of new content going up there as well. One other thing that I'm doing, and this is the last thing, and then I'll let you get under listening to the show, but what I found during uh, this whole pause that we've had, you know, we've all had this time to think over the last few months and what I really felt you know down deep in my bones was that I needed more breadth of creative outlets so for me like if you've been following my content for a while you know I generally talk about business and marketing and sort of how you can apply science in those areas and that's generally what I get interviewed about as well when other people interview me and what I really wanted to do was also start looking at some of those bigger questions and those bigger ideas in relation to my interest in science and philosophy. So I've every two weeks I'm now publishing a sort of critical analysis video about what the science says about a particular topic. So the first one I did was on science and atheism where I looked at a discussion that Russell Russell Brand and Brene Brown had had around atheism and science and they, they kind of had this this argument, this, they put together this sort of straw man argument that didn't, it didn't really make a lot of sense. And so I kind of analyzed it and broke it down and talked about that. And the next one I'm doing is on the law of attraction. So I've recorded that. That will be up very soon and I'll put the link to that as well. If you are interested in things outside of this, that's why I'm saying this. So <laughs> if you like my content, uh, which I'm guessing you do because you're listening to this episode and you want to see more stuff from me that isn't just about business, 
come and check out my YouTube channel. It's all kind of experimental at the moment, but I will probably be releasing a podcast around this stuff. So any thoughts that you have around that, if you have feedback for me or ideas, I would love your comments. I'd love your thoughts. Uh, I always like to get the thoughts of people who are already listening to me because, you know, to me, you're the priority, uh, you're my audience and uh, you're the people I want to be making content for. So if that sounds like something that you think would be interesting, I'd love to know. Or if it's not, you know, come tell me what you think. All right, let's get on to the interview for today. So this is Kezia Robinson. If you want to find out more about Kezia, she works with people around the world. Um, I'll put her LinkedIn profile and her website links in here. We do talk about a workshop that Kezia was running, which has now passed, um, but Kezia does run quite a lot of virtual workshops and things like that. So uh, do get in touch with her so that you know about the next time something like that's happening uh, if you'd like to be involved with that. All right, without further ado, here is today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. G'day everyone, Lauren Cress, the business scientist here and joining me this morning is Kezia Robinson. Kezia is over in Boston, uh, which is why we're talking earlier today. And Kezia, I'll just get you to start by explaining a little bit about what you do. Hi, Lauren. Yeah, it's a, it's a little late right here, but I'm still uh, I'm excited to be on. Uh, I'm a business coach so and, uh, and strategy consultant. I work with small business owners, everything from kind of solopreneurs and startups up to people who are running a couple of hundred person farms. And I really help people just take it up to the next level. And how have you been finding, I mean, like I know things in the States are a bit different to here, but we're, I think we're all kind of getting to the point where it's kind of like, okay, we're getting used to this idea of there's going to be this new normal in business. Uh, everyone's kind of been a bit shaken up. How, how are you finding things uh, now with your clients kind of trying to adjust to to what's happening? Well, the first there was, uh, I think, and everyone had this, there was just sort of a sh- the shock at the very beginning. And then I call the what if loop, like people got very much into the what if loop, what if they do this, what if you do that and indecision, um, as you know, from psychology research, right, the worst thing you can do is be in is in a state of uncertainty. Because if you so I, I actually with a lot of people, I was like, let's assume, you know, 80% of restaurants close. Let's assume this kills X number of people. Let's take the worst case scenario because you can plan in a worst case scenario. You can't plan in a state of uncertainty. So what we start to see is now we're getting these, um, I think we're in a little bit of a false sense of security. They're starting to open things up uh, and, and that there's, I think we're going to have a few more waves uh, and that seems to be, be consistent if you talk to the scientists, but there tends to be a little bit of this like, oh, we're going to open it up. It's all going to be back to normal. So there's, again, that tendency where I'm like, okay, fine, we can plan to the high scenario, we can plan to the low scenario. And more importantly, we can come up with like, how do you actually navigate the new information as it comes to you? So, but it's things are, I mean, I would say people are generally pretty optimistic. That's why I deal with people who are in the optimistic camp. That's my ideal clients are um, or more positive leaning, so... Well, I mean, that, and this is kind of what we're talking about today. So I know you've got a workshop that you're running later this week on this, and we're kind of, I guess, picking your brain a little bit beforehand <laughs> about sort of who do you want to do business with? Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? 
Well, one of the things I noticed and I, I've and with myself is that it, almost every client I have will come to me at some point, will go through the ones who are in service businesses, will start going through their client list. And they would always go, well, you, you know, you don't understand. In my industry, whatever that industry is, you just have to put up with people or sometimes people don't pay or sometimes this. And there was just and it was one of those things the first time it's kind of like, well, I'm like, well, I've, I've I was in the investment business. I worked in business. I've probably met with a thousand companies in my career. I'm like, um, I'm this is not true across all industries. Right. But I was like, maybe not. And as I started to build out, I started to realize this real pattern that people were putting up with a lot of bad behavior from their clients and they had bought into the idea that. You just have to roll with it. You just have to take certain amount of crap from your clients. And I'm really big on how do you manage your energy? Because it's like, the, I think that's the primary commodity. And I started to look at it. I was like, well, what? how do you feel after you get off the phone with a bad client? Do you want to pick up the phone and make three more calls? Do you want to like go in if you have employees? Do you want to go be positive and support them? No, it's like you want to complain to somebody. You want to go get a coffee. And it just starts to suck the energy out of your day. And I really started to understand how, how bad one bad client, mm. even a couple just mediocre clients, like that they were just going to drain the life out of you. And that was really the difference because if you shed them, every time somebody, my clients, they'd cut this cl those bad clients, they would have so much relief. No matter how much, I mean, 30% of revenue might have gone away and they would be feeling better. And then within a very short period of time, they start to attract great clients and they're making more money and they have more energy. So, mm -hmm. No, it's such a great point. I want to ask you more about this, but we just got a question from Peter Strokov. Hey, Peter, thanks for the question. Um, so how do you suggest business owners should go about identifying what the new normal in business will look like? And what should, what should they do about it? So going back, I guess, sort of to your best case, worst case um, uh, comment there, do you have any uh, sort of answers in relation to that? Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that you are not the economy, right? I say this to a lot of my clients when they start getting into like, oh, what's going on outside of me is um, – you are not the economy. I mean, you know, maybe Peter, I hope you are. If you have 50% market share in your industry, you're doing great. But most people have, you know, they're like, you ask them like this, and I, so I'm kind of like, okay, well, you're not your market. So let's look at what has happened. Um, I even have one of my clients does restaurant event planning, and she has already launched two new ventures um, since that that are both food related and in support of the restaurant industry. They have not filled her revenue gap, right? She hasn't been able to hire back people, but she's continuing to find new ways to make money and to keep herself afloat. So I think that there's a lot of this sense that if you're waiting to figure out exactly what the new normal will look like, you're not going to be able to make decisions. And so it's really important to kind of step back and go, what's the value I provide? Is it necessary to be physically in contact with other people in order to provide that value? If it is, what's the next best alternative? Um, and I think for restaurants, some of it's going to be there. the restaurants that succeed are going to be the ones who figure out how to use social distancing and yet still generate the, the positive energy that we get from going to a place with other people. I'm not sure what that looks like, but you certainly want to look at who's having those conversations and to be thinking for your own business, just to keep in mind that, hey, if you're positive, if you're moving forward, if you're being creative, um, if you're going out to your network and you're really trying to understand what your customers and your clients need and how you can create value for them, in, things are magically, and it sounds terrible to say it, but stuff will start to come your way 
Uh, and you, and for most people, you know, you, you're, you can pick up share, let somebody else decide to throw in the towel, let somebody else decide to cut prices, let somebody else decide that this is never going to work. Um, and, and you can be someone who picks up share. Peter also said, I love this line, you are not the economy. Great answer. I guess it means to control what you can and don't sweat what you can't control. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. That was brilliantly said. <laughs> so, I, mean, I would like exactly control what you can and just don't sweat the rest. That's, that's, that's so right. I agree. I love that. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for your comments. And anyone else who's listening wants to ask a question, please feel free to throw it our way during our chat. But Kezia, let's get back to this chat about bad clients because this is something I'm super passionate about as well. I remember once I was at this networking event and we had to go around and we were saying like uh, everyone had to say, you know, like what they did and it got kind of boring because there's like 150 people and it was like, oh, here's what I do, do and here's who I serve and this is my ideal client, you know, kind of thing. And I stood up and I was like, um, hands up who wants more customers? And, you know, everyone puts their head up. And then I was like, hands up who thinks bad clients are a massive pain in the ass? <laughs> and like, hey, some people love and put their hand. And I'm like, you know, the, really what we're doing here is we need to find the people who are not bad clients because the they end up, and I've experienced this myself, they end up really not just draining your energy, but they cost you money in the long run, right? Well, it's, I mean, at a minimum, the opportunity cost. Like my rough math is like one bad client costs you three good clients. Yeah. Like I, I and um, so at a minimum, it's the opportunity cost. Often, if you start to run in the numbers, um, it, you, it's actually, they are negative. And that's one where, especially as some, I'm like, if someone doesn't pay you, right? And how much time do you have to spend tracking them down, refiling the invoices, calling? Half the time, then you'll hire somebody to do your collections for you, right? Like I've often, well, we need to hire somebody to do accounts receivable. And it's like, well, actually, if you did a better job setting up terms, screening clients at the beginning, maybe doing more of a contract basis as opposed to billing, uh, you know, like or better milestone billing, all of a sudden you wouldn't have a problem with your accounts receivable. You wouldn't have people who aren't paying you. So there's a a lot of that um, where it's really just about being more thoughtful about what it makes a bad client. And then what do you want? And I think the biggest thing is people say, well, I want someone who pays me on time. And it's like, well, what does on time mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, have you set it up? Have you made it easy for them to pay you? Have you articulated at the beginning what you mean by on time? You know, I always, I always say, you know, if you, as anyone who's after, had to work for two people at the same time knows, right, that um, one person will come in and say, I need this done ASAP, and the other one will say, take your time, and they both mean I want it by Friday. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> So you have to know going in, and, and I think that can be hard, especially times like now when people get a little desperate, right? They, they're like, oh, every client is like gold. I need to, I need to, I can't. If I'm too picky, I won't have any business. Is that you have a lot of power? You're gifting somebody with your time, energy, your service, right? I'm sure you're awesome at your job. If you're not, you better get awesome at your job because you're not going to have one for very long. But like if you're you're awesome at your job, you're awesome at your business, you're gifting them that in exchange for which they are going to give you money, right? It's a good transaction. But if you come into it like with understanding of like how much power you have and who else you could be serving, you start to do things like 
put terms out there or ask for deposits. Um, cut someone off the first time they don't pay as opposed to continuing to serve them when, and hope that they're going to finally catch up, things like that. Yeah, I think, you know, the point you make about people might be feeling a bit desperate is a good one. And I think, you know, like, I mean, I definitely went through this as well, even like pre-coronavirus when I kind of felt less confident, you know, like maybe I'd had a, a, a bad few weeks and it's like someone's finally interested and or like my pipeline's been a bit low. And I think when we're doing something, I think this is this really happens when it's like you're building a business that you're really like passionate about and into and you love the work that you're doing because it can like not feel like work it's like any money feels like a good deal. I'm getting paid to do what I love. Like I would do this for free, you know, and I feel like we can get so, uh, you know, into our business that we kind of forget to have like the, it's like the emotional involvement stops us from seeing the rational side of like, this is a transaction and a negotiation. Do you see that happen quite a lot? I know for myself, like I, I, even for this workshop, I have someone who called me up and she said, I'm so excited. I'm coming to the workshop. And I was like, oh, well, I'll send you a, a ticket. And she was like, I, I no, I'm going to pay. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just so excited to have her. She's fantastic. I'm really, it's a small group workshop and there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to cross connect there. So I was like, just so excited she was coming. It didn't. And so I, I, I absolutely agree. And one of the things that's been really helpful for me is that I, I look at, you know, we're always in the business of creating value. People pay you for creating value. Um, and specifically, and this is a big one for a lot of my clients, people pay you for the value you create above and beyond the perceived next best alternative. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to understand as you're picking your clients and as you're going out, like who are they and then what are their, not only what are their actual alternatives, but what's their perceived next best alternative? I was talking to a, a woman who is a uh, health coach. One of the challenges there is somebody's perceived next best alternative is that they're going to buy that Peloton and finally lose all that weight or that this they're, they're going to stick to their New Year's resolution. And so there's a lot of how do you position yourself for that? But if you look at that value, then I would say, well, you're if it's real tangible, you can charge, you know, maybe 50% more than the value you create. Like if you're it's literally like you give me $100 and I will give you $150, I mean, you're that's fine. People will do that if you can prove that type. The further, the more amorphous it is and the further apart in time that we're looking at it, the greater the multiple. But you're usually still talking about three to five times. Maybe I would say for coaching, you might be shooting for something closer to 10. But if you're not charging anything and you're trying to tell me I'm going to get all this value, I'm thinking that doesn't make, that's, you know, it's like somebody said, oh, you're going to have a million times the value that I give you. Oh, we could, we could fly. This is your summer. That means Six Flags in the taste of an ice cold Coca-Cola. We're talking thrilling coasters, delicious burgers, yes. real moments together, and this. Coke is summer refreshment when you need it most, so you can hop on another ride or race down a slide at the water park. This is your summer. Six Flags and Coca-Cola. Come make it yours. Visit sixflags.com slash Coke to save up to $20 on passes. Coming back, that doesn't sound like a good deal. That sounds too good to be true. And so you start thinking of it like that. You go, hey, I'm going to provide you with a ton of value, but you got to pay me some money and you will actually realize that value and 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 it'll mean more to you because you had to pay for it. 
So, yeah. But like I said, I still tried to give somebody a ticket machine. None of us are perfect. Well, I mean, and I, I think it is, it's, you know, I don't know, for me in my like personal business journey, I've definitely found that so much of this relates back to my own mindset and my own, you know, psychology and my own kind of self-awareness. So, you know, like if I'm feeling like doubting myself, then that affects the way that my business runs. It's just, I think it's really interesting how those two things interact. But like you said, I think one of the, one of, I think you're so right in saying that if we don't show, we if we don't put a price to something, then it's not, it's not valuable. And so if it's not valuable, it's not going to really have an effect because people aren't perceiving that as something that's like, oh yeah, okay, I I had to pay for this. So you know, it's it's like I think there's been a bunch of studies that have been done with like people who don't pay or invest in like losing weight or you know getting medicine or something. I'm not necessarily saying that medicine should be super expensive, but like to have some sort of uh, investment in it actually makes it more effective. Where if you don't invest anything, then you know, like, you, you know what I mean, right? I'm not saying. And I do think, I mean, I think that for me, the biggest thing that I had to come to for with my own clients was, you know, it, I mean, I am in the business of seeing the potential that you do not see in yourself as a business owner, seeing the potential in a business that, that you do, that the business does not see in itself, right? That is, that is how I help people level up. However, the owner and the business have to have some sense that they could be bigger, that they could be greater. They may not know how far, but like they, there is some sense of how, how much they, greater they could be. And I'm there to, to really help them see how much bigger it could be, right? And really help them take it to that next level. Yeah. If the, what I had to realize is I had clients, there are people, they were wonderful people. And this is the thing about bad clients is sometimes they are like your friends. They are lovely people. They're somebody else's Prince Charming, right? They aren't bad, necessarily bad clients for everyone. But I had some wonderful people who I really enjoyed, but who they didn't want to be any bigger than they were. Mm. They wanted things yeah. to be easier. They wanted this. They yeah. wanted to clean up. They wanted to stop having these issues with their employees. They wanted a bunch of little things, but they did not want to be bigger. And it's mm. kind of like, well, I'm charging you money and you have to put in effort on top of it. So it's like the cost to you is not just the money, but it's also this mental effort. If you only want to be 10% better, then why would you bother? Right? So I started to really go out and be much clearer about wanting to work with people who really were looking to the next stage of their life. If they were thinking of selling a business who had dreams, who wanted to be somebody who wanted their business to mean something who cared about really big issues. And I started communicating that and I started getting more full paying clients. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, that's a, I've had the same, exactly the same experience where I'm like, I can see the potential of someone's business and I'm like, this is like, you're doing something so unique and you've got such a great story to tell. And like, we could get you in the media super easily. And like, not just that, like, that's not really actually what I even do, but like, I could just see, I'm like, this is great. Like this, everyone needs this kind of thing. But some clients are just like, no, no, no. We just want like our operations to be a little bit smoother. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) 
I, yeah, so great. I know some operations consultants. Like that's one thing I'm kind of like, okay, um, I'll, if you're trying to find a new software for your workflow management, like I, I'll connect you to somebody. Um, but that is really so much of it is to like realize who you want to work with. And I, I had to come to terms with that. And it meant that there are people I say no to. Um, it meant that I started sounding, and this can be hard um, for women, it can be hard for anybody, um, for us to go out and start saying, I only want to deal with with people who want to play in the big leagues. I told you I was going to have to, I was going to put a baseball reference in here. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm from Boston, it's not my fault. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute, but first a quick message from our sponsors, the Changemakers Collective. The Changemakers Collective is a science-led consultancy passionate about supporting SMEs who are changing the world for the better. They work with clients who require flexible marketing solutions for sustainable growth by providing consulting, training, project management, and specialist recruitment services to help businesses, B Corps, and nonprofits get more customers, grow brand equity, and increase market share. To find out more, visit thechangemakerscollective.com. Dot au. And now back to the show. It feels weird. You feel like, who am I? You know, oh, who am I to walk around saying I only want to deal with people who have enormous potential? I only want to deal with people who really are going to go somewhere. I, want, I only want to deal with people where we can collectively create a lot of value. And, uh, and I'm like, well, I'm, that's who I am. That's who I want to deal with. And there's somebody else out there for the person who just wants their operations to run a little smoother. And I'm happy to try to, and I want to make that connection too, because they're entitled to it. And there are other people who do that for a living, but I'm entitled to work with somebody who really wants to take it up to the next level. Now, I want to ask you something about, you know, providing some free value because we were talking about, you know, like people, people need to pay for a service. We don't want to kind of, uh, you know, demit. Uh, diminish our the value of our services and Peter put a little cheeky comment in here saying so Lauren I should have given you a free copy of my, of my book because Peter gave me a free copy of his book which is very kind Peter and I'm looking forward to reading it and I think that um, there is a point where we do want to give something and then we've got to look at how we bring that into you know a, a pay transact what's your thoughts on that like do you usually advise businesses to look at providing free value first in terms of, you know, the top of their funnel kind of engagement? Yeah, I, um, so I talk about it's where the paywall is. And I don't know if that's an expression you guys use, but you know, if you try to read like a lot of newspapers, like they'll give you two or three free articles and then they hit you with the, you have to subscribe, right? Um, so I guess, so for Peter is, so let's just say Peter's gotten a shout out five, six times already. So that (laughs) book is probably paid for itself. (laughs) Right. So, um, so what I do is with glance, I call it the value, kind of the value stack. So look at, at each point of engagement, whether that's marketing, whether that's, and you can use that even for when you think about what is, what's the point of your marketing? What's the point of, if you're running a podcast, what's the point of it? You're looking at how does that create value and for whom, and how does that create value for you? So if it's something I would say, if you like, I love to talk, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, I don't love to write, so I would not build my marketing strategy around blog writing. But what I am doing is building it around this, then getting transcripts, then working with a writer, 
and then I'm a pretty good editor. So then it's, so I'm, I'm like finding ways to create that. So I, but I look at, I don't mind. I love to talk. This is so interesting. I love meeting you. I'm really excited to meet Peter someday and you can send me <laughs> free too. Right? We're having a great time and we're sharing really great ideas and getting to put them out there. So this is something that energizes me and it creates value for your audience and for you, right? The goal is to help you also further your, your brand and further your ambitions. So that's the kind of thing where when you're starting to think about how to, what am I doing and how does it create value? You begin to figure out where the paywall goes. And a lot of times with service providers, what happens is they put so much into the proposal yeah. that there's nothing left, right? The only thing left is a commodity piece. So one of the things is um, I, I have a web developer and it's great. He's, he went through this process with me and he changed it. And he has, he realized that he was, his real value is in the strategic stuff. I mean, he was, he was delivering to people a proposal. It had a site map, it had personas. I mean, he was doing all of the work for free and yeah. handing it to them. And the only thing left was this commodity portion of the business. And so we've effectively, when we're working with him, he's been able to move that paywall. And having just a, a really fantastic now, and the client is still getting an incredible amount of, ex, of value, but except that he's screening in clients who want to pay for that, yeah, who see the value. Because if they don't see the value when you're talking about it, they won't want to spend the money. So I know for me, I, I often do a demo sessions, but I do demo sessions with uh, referral partners. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm using them because it's hard to explain what happens in coaching. And if I'm going to ask you to put your neck out there and refer me, let's say you're a financial advisor and you're going to refer me to a family business that you've got a longstanding relationship with, I want you to understand what I'm doing. I don't view that as a waste of my time. I view that as uh, it's way better than me taking out to lunch. Yeah. Um, and even though the dollar value of my time is much higher than the, the cost of taking you to lunch, that's going to be more effective. So a lot of it's looking at thinking of it really like not in a calculating way, but in a calculating way about what are you creating value and really being focused on doing that. And you're going to see when you want to start to people will start to volunteer to pay you is mm. one of the weird things when you, when you're kind of not, you'll start to notice as you, if you get more is that people will start to ask what's the price point. They will start to have that conversation far earlier than they were before when you were kind of throwing a lot of free resources out there. No, it's, it's such a good point. And I think it's definitely something I've seen a lot of agencies in particular do, uh, where they kind of go, oh, here's this big pitch. And you're kind of like, especially with the more traditional model, uh, you know, where you've got maybe 10 people working on different aspects of putting this pitch and this proposal together. Mm-hmm. And then, and they know there's other people going for the same pitch. And I'm like, you've just invested potentially like $15,000 in just getting it, maybe more in getting this proposal together and it might not go anywhere. And it's sort of like, there's been no investment from the client side to go, we're coming to the the table as well. I, I just think like, it's, it's really not sustainable to give so much away like that, like in the strategy space for free. I like the whole life. Life is a gray market. And so one of the things that often happens, and you know, this if you've ever had someone career, I mean, I don't do career coaching, but people occasionally come to me like friends from business school. And if you ever see a job description that you're like, this is perfect. This is exact. I was like, it was written for somebody else like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. 
Like it's not, you know, research analyst level three, which has like, there's like 50 of them in the company. That job description was already, there's already a candidate. They wrote it with someone in mind. They're probably internal. They might interview you because they need to have an external candidate, but like that has been, and the same thing happens with RFPs. And mm -hmm. so people often are in there and you shouldn't be in a bake-off. You should be the only person. Realistically, you should be the only person in consideration because you should have been having those conversations earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, the bake-off doesn't hurt in the sense that sometimes it's, hey, it's a new practice area. So you know you're not going to win it, but you might still kind of begin to build a relationship. And you're going to need to do that work eventually. So now you've got a proposal that you can pick up and take to somebody else. You can do that, but understanding what that is. You're not going to be disappointed. I mean, you, you still want to win the business, but you'll be thinking about it in a different way. You'll probably put together a better proposal because you're thinking of it as, hey, what is, what's going to be of most value to us and to not just this client, but to other clients. So mm -hmm. there are times when you might want to invest in it, but a lot of times if there's a bake-off, if there's a bunch of people in there, this is, this is not the client you need right? Go find other clients who are not thinking like that. Go find clients who are looking at what's special and unique about your business and where you can have a relationship. And by the time the proposal comes out, it was written for you. Yeah. Right. No, it's, it's really, really well put. And I completely agree. I mean, there will be um, people who play the RFP game. Hey, Sharon, how are you going? And also, hello, Floris. For some reason, Floris, your name didn't pop up. Um, but then Peter said something, so I noticed who it was. <laughs> Keep chatting, guys. If you've got any questions to Kezia, <laughs> let us know. Otherwise, feel free to talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> But like going back to this RFP point, like I see more and more like really great consultants and really great agencies, like not going down that path. Um, some of the, some of the like really notable agencies who did like ads in the, um, in the, what's it called? The Super Bowl. Was it last year? Like, you know, there was the, the one about like the, um, uh, like Crocodile Dundee, there being like a sequel or something. It was like an ad. And I went and watched, I think it was like Dro Droga 5, I always forget the name of the agency, but I saw them doing a speech and they were saying like, yeah, we never do RFPs. And I'm like, wow, this is like a big agency taking a stand on this, which is awesome. But I think it's almost like as an industry, like especially in the business services space, it's almost like you kind of need all of the service providers to be like, no, we're not going to play this game anymore. Because then if, if, that, if everyone does that, then it kind of forces the clients to change the way that they procure services. Um, where at the moment, I feel like a lot of us are actually just making it hard for ourselves and, and for other businesses as well. And it, it, a lot of it is that what's your value above and beyond the perceived next best alternative? And understanding the pressures, I think when you're going into big, we were talking earlier about big clients versus smaller clients. I mean, one of the reasons I've done work with larger companies, but I love working with someone where that's the owner or owners, right? Same. Like Same. If I don't have, they don't need to check with anybody. Like if they want to, if they approve the contract, they write the checks, I show up. Like we don't have to have, a, it doesn't go through purchasing and procurement and this, there aren't these, all these layers. Um, Nobody in legal has to check, right? I mean, we still, I always suggest somebody in legal takes a look at it. My lawyer certainly takes a look at it, but nobody in legal has to check. That's not the kind of engagement you're having. And so it, when you're at a bigger company, it can often be one of those things though, again, who's actually making the decision and what are the criteria for the decision and really getting that because we'll spend you know, so much time 
pitching someone who is all in and they love you and they have no authority to actually sign off, right? <laughs> like they, they, they love you. They're often responsible for this project, right? They're the person who's going to have to do all the work, but they actually don't have the authority. And this gets to the, one of the things I do even with this is asking screening questions and being really clear in a gentle way is are there other people involved, even at a small, if you're, if you're like a marketing and you're a marketing agency and you're pitching a very small business, does the head of marketing, who is the person you're talking to, actually have the authority to make a decision? Or are you going to get three calls in and then it's like, mm, got to bring this to Jane. And you're like, Jane, right? Who's Jane? And it's like, oh, well, Jane's the COO. I didn't realize that she needed to approve this, right? So there's a lot of these questions we don't ask. We're so busy pitching at the beginning, and we're yeah. not asking the questions to say, is this going to be a good fit? Do I have enough information to make decisions? Do I have enough information to decide whether I'm going to put in the proposal? So um, it's a lot of, it's calculating in the sense that you're just going to, you kind of have to be very thoughtful about it. But it's not in the sense that you're not building a relationship. You really are trying to build a relationship. And sometimes you go, hey, this person is not, I look, I'll often look at when I get in, when I engage with somebody who's not at the top of the stack, they'll often look and go, you know, they're going to be someplace else. So this conversation, it's just investment for the future. I'm, I'm not going to pitch them something that they are going to want to buy. I will, I've done this. I've sent people some, a proposal that is, I know is not going to fly. It's close enough that they think I did it, that I didn't turf it, but it just isn't, I just will give them something that is not what they were specifically asking for so that they will not hire me, but we will have engaged the relationship. Mm. I don't do that very often because I, as I get better and better about who I'm even going to talk to, um, I don't, that's not the dynamic, but I don't mind that. I don't necessarily view that as a, a loss, um, but I've count, accounted for the effort and energy and time I'm putting in correctly and put it into the right bucket. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Flores. Sorry, Flores. I keep getting LinkedIn user, so I'm not sure who's comment, commenting on this, but uh, I think it's Flores who said, understanding the decision-making process is an integral part of B2B sales. So how do you investigate and how do you find who is on top of the stack? And we might finish with that question, Kezia, as the, the kind of, because um, we've got to wrap up soon, but I think it's a great question to kind of wrap up what you were saying about who those, those stakeholders are. Sometimes is ask, you know, so, oh, so who do you work with? And how, how is your organization set up, mm. right? You could normalize. You could very much go, yeah, I know that, um, you know, sales reports in some organizations, sales reports the CEO. Sometimes you guys are your separate things. Sometimes you report to the revenue officer. But if you start to give somebody a license to talk about themselves, they'll usually share. If they're super secretive, that's a bad sign, mm. right? Like if someone's like, I can't tell you, who are uh, who actually makes decisions here? Yeah. Guess what? <laughs> not someone you want to sell to. Like it's a dictator who is not going to approve anything, or like they don't know. Mm. Like, that happens sometimes. So a lot of it is just really that relationship building. Um, often, and this is a classic sales when you call someone is, I'm not sure I have the right person. So I'm, you know, can you help me with this? 
Mm. Can I just get 30 seconds of your time? I'm not sure that this is the right contact. Can you help me? I am, this is what I'm the person, and you ask for the person who would approve it. You ask the decision maker. So it is a lot about that really showing interest in, in whoever. And half the time, an assistant will know more. I always make a point of, if somebody gives you a calling and asking for their office, gives you a chance to talk to their assistant. That's, and often that person knows actually who makes decisions, mm, right? Yeah. Um, and they'll give you more. So it, it can be, it depends on the size of the sale and also the complexity as to what, but it's better just to ask. And honestly, if somebody gets offended at the idea that you're just asking, well, who else, what happens after we file this proposal? Or um, are there other people who would like to be, You, we should be looping in. If they get offended by that, they're gonna be a bad client anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Hands and walk away. <laughs> it's better to know then than three calls later, like you said, right? Or <laughs> right. Plenty of fish in the sea. Right? And and you're really, if you really have a lot of value, like that's what you think is like you're doing something great. Like you're really there to help. If they're not gonna receive that help from you, you don't have what's your market share? Mm. Go find somebody else. And I think that that is um, that can be really hard because we want we want to win and we want each person to love us and we want each but to kind of think if you're you're kind of thinking more, you know, it's like basketball, right? Like you not lead you won't be leading the whole time, right? You're gonna have to let somebody get if they have to get a few points in here so you can get the ball back and you can win the game. So sometimes just thinking sometimes you gotta let a client go, um, a prospect go, and uh, so that you can move forward and you can really invest your energy in great clients. Hundred percent. I love that, Kezia. This has been so awesome. Love that you got a basketball analogy in there as well. By the way, <laughs> basketball. You brought up the Super Bowl, but you know, <laughs> Kezia. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to reach out and get in touch? Best way is to find me on LinkedIn. Um, I have a pretty distinctive name, so I'm pretty much the only one who'll show up. Uh, and you can also go to my website, which is www.cassia-partners.com. That's C-A-S-S-I-A-partners.com. And Cassia Partners is also on Facebook. Awesome. And Kezia, do you work primarily with people in the States or do you work with people around the world as well? Um, I've done work with people all over. Uh, I, it's interesting that I previously did a lot of in-person work, so that would typically limit me to, you know, maybe maybe the UK and things like that. But I'm, I've now, with what's gone with COVID, I've had to really expand my virtual. And so I've, I've got the capacity to, to take on clients in a lot of other geographies. Oh, fantastic. That's awesome. Kezia, thanks again. It was great to chat with you. I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Lauren. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for your comments. See you soon.